Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Welcome to The Bridge. My name is Jason. Today with me is Alex Schur. Hello, everyone. I am Alex. So a joint uh, statement on climate diplomacy between Washington and Beijing came out just before she headed off to San Francisco for APEC and to meet Joe Biden. And they agreed, the United States and China agreed to triple renewable energy capacity globally by 2030. They also agreed to advance at least five, quote unquote, large scale uh, carbon capture and storage projects each. Quote, both countries also agreed to include a broader array of greenhouse gases and their existing 2035 climate targets, including methane and nitrous oxide, end quote, according to FT, Time Magazine, and others. Are we quietly entering a new age of cooperation on climate change? What do you think, Alex? I think quite absolutely. And this is one of those topics that the two countries, although we have a lot of things that we disagree on, this is climate change or all climate related issues seems to be something that the two governments, two countries could really work together on. And this is something that is beneficial to the whole world. And, you know, disagreements, it don't, they don't really do anyone any good. So yes, I think we are going into the new age. Maybe the age has always been here. It's just been a little clouded by other differences between China and the United States. Yo, this is definitely something we can agree on because, you know, the scientists in both countries at least agree. I mean, 99% of them said that global warming is I think the importance is is, is, is unanimous. Right. So COP 28 is ongoing from November 30th to December 8th in Dubai and 70,000 experts and delegates, uh, politicians from all over the world are descending upon Dubai to talk about three basic things. Number one, One is prevent the world from heating by 1.5 degrees Celsius before 2050 to end carbon emissions globally, or at least be carbon neutral by 2050, Mm. and to help impoverished communities around the world deal with the effects of global warming. I think what they mean are low-laying island countries that don't have the ability to defend themselves from the rising tides. Yeah. So with that in mind, if the United States and China, the two largest economy. And when I say two largest economies, sometimes I don't think people really understand. It's not like China and the US and then like another country. No, it's like China and then the US and then there's a massive gulf. Yeah. And then there's the rest of the world and all the other economies of the world are like 1 trillion or 2 trillion. The US and China are both 20 or 30 trillion each, depending on how you measure it nominally or by purchasing power parity. So the United States and China have a dramatic you know, there's a dramatic gulf between our economic capabilities, mm. you know, our manufacturing capabilities and the rest of the world. So if these yeah. two countries agree to get along and like, hey, let's make the world safer and make it less likely that we're going to endure the worst uh, effects of climate change, then that is a, a huge step. Yeah, absolutely. And and we know that, um, like Jason is saying, this is something that can't be, and I'm not quoting anything, any authoritative source, but I feel like if either country is not making um, as big of, uh, as an effort to, to alleviate the climate change problem, it's going to have a worse impact on everybody else. So we have to work together. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's an article here that and I quoted it in, the, in our introduction from Time uh, by Ken Maritsugu. And I, I guess it's originally from AP because it says AP here. Mm. China and the U.S. pledge to step up climate efforts. And I think, you know, most people don't spend all day every day reading about climate change. So I'm an outlier here. But there's some things in this article that are not really accurate. I mean, they're not inaccurate, but they're not they're they're 
covering up uh, a lot of uh, information. And maybe it's an accident because mm. it mentions that uh, our two countries are the, quote, world's two biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, end quote. You know, that's true. And But you have to look at the details and the context. Mm. The United States is a roughly 5% of the world's population. China's 20% of the world's population. <laughs> so when you when this writer, uh, Ken, says that China is one of the two biggest emitters, that's not really fair. So yeah. if you look at per capita, China's not even in the top 15 countries for biggest emitters in the world. So it's not really analogous to talk correct, you know, to talk about it in this way. Yeah. Uh, because China's population is just enormous compared to that of the United States. That is so true. India and China have the largest populations of any countries in the world. This is commonly known to people who know about, you know, global geography, human geography. Mm. In India and China, there are long lists of uh, the biggest polluters, and India and China are not on those lists. They're, they're at the very bottom of those lists. In ter- actually, in terms mm. of per capita, I think Saudi Arabia is one of the largest emitters, and that's probably because they process <laughs> a lot of the oil for the world. But Canada, yeah. Australia, and the United States in terms of per capita developed large nations. Canada, the Australia, and the US are massive polluters per capita. Um, in terms yeah. of per capita, China's way down on the list. And China also has more True. solar power energy, more uh, hydropower energy, and more wind power energy, wind and power. more offshore wind power energy than any nation in the world. And in some some of these cases, as much of the as the rest of the world combined. So Mm. I, I, you know, when Time Magazine is putting us in the same uh, two world's two biggest emitters, they really need to put that in context. Anyways, so yeah. I'm glad still that these two countries have agreed to work together. And I hope because one of the things China's doing is it's driving down the price point of these energies by producing them at massive scale. So China yeah. is the largest manufacturer. Let's just take solar, for example. It controls about 98% of all solar manufacturing in the world. And so because Mm. it's doing that, and China is also the largest manufacturer in the world, it's driven the price point of solar down, where solar is now the most affordable form of energy. It's more affordable than natural gas, it's more affordable than oil, and it's more affordable Mm. than coal. And all three of those are fossil fuel emitting uh, forms of energy production. So, uh, you know, for one, I think China could probably triple the amount of solar in in the world by 2030 without the U.S., but I'm glad that the U.S. is on board. Yeah. And with with carbon emission as well. And then you definitely have a great point. You know, we should when we talk about carbon emission as as a whole economy, you should put that in context. But the Chinese government also is not trying to shy away from this issue alone. And they have been pretty upfront about their, you know, uh, resolve to 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 change this current situation. And ever since, at least personally, from things that I've been involved in since 2018, it has been on the agenda for every single big meetings, important uh, discussions that the, the government has been holding. And there's a lot of organizations, you know, nonprofit organizations or, or, or international organizations that have been set up here or have started their causes here to really just get together to change um, the situation and then the whole goal of, you know, carbon neutrality um, and all of these, you know, uh, big agenda that the government's been talking about and, and all organizations and government departments have been putting on their, you know, calendar. It really shows that how much China is willing to, uh, you know, how much responsibility China is willing to shoulder when it comes to climate change when it comes to carbon emissions so that in, I don't know, hopefully in a decade or two decades, when we talk about carbon emission and regardless of carbon emission per capita, you know, this kind of uh, saying, quoting China as one of the biggest emitters could be left out completely. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, I'm really excited about the future. You know, it's really nice when you uh, back the right horse (laughs) because China is in fact winning in a lot of ways on things that I I took up as my personal like a few years ago and I'm like wow China really is delivering I feel so vindicated you're listening to The Bridge And I think 2019, 2020, China announced 
that it was going to try to be uh, reach peak carbon by 2030. That means it would get because China basically this is complicated. China is adding more electrification at all at the same time yeah. as it's developing, so it needs more electricity at the same time that it's mm. adding all these renewable energies. So at some point, China's plan was to stop keep being able to add electrification, but not adding fossil fuels, and that's called peak carbon, a point at which China would no longer uh, increase the amount of carbon, fossil fuel emissions from one year to the next. And mm. it, it set that goal for 2030 with the goal of being carbon neutral by 2060. But China mm. reached it already. China, and this was a really discussed by Wood McKenzie and a couple of other uh, major international publications. And uh, mm. this happened about a month ago. So it was actually the, wow. originally about You're two really years, up to speed on this. Huh? Oh, I read, I read articles about it every morning <laughs> when I wake up. It's the first thing I do is read all the stuff about China and solar and wind and all the stuff, every article that's coming out. So um, wow. three months ago, they said, wow, China, it looks like China is on track to reach peak carbon by 2024 next year. And then about a month ago, it was- Which is it, coming it up like, very soon. No, no, no. But a month ago, it was like China reached it. So it's going so fast oh, wow. that it's uh, it, it's building so much renewable energy so fast mm. that people who are tracking it can't keep up with how fast China is actually adding it. So it's like yeah. remarkable. It's really remarkable. Yeah. I think we've, we've discussed this before in one of our previous episodes and we talked about how you like a lot of people don't expect to see all of these like giant windmills for wind power. But if you go on a, a bullet train or if you take a train pretty much anywhere in China, like on your way from point A to point B, you will see a lot of those things. And then occasionally you see the giant trucks transporting these uh the giant leaf of these uh, of these windmills and it the looks blade. quite magnificent yeah. and they're the blade thank you and then they're <laughs> they're pretty common if you're someone who travels quite a bit in china you will definitely you have definitely seen at least one site of these giant windmills for wind power and then of course there're all of the you know the gorges the the dams that we don't constantly see but they're kind of everywhere in china mm -hmm. and always keep in mind this is, this is a massive country so there's a lot of sites built so i'm not i'm not surprised that we kind of reached the goal like what seven years before mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um the yeah. set date because it's kind of easy to imagine if you've seen the scale of things here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well you know yeah i travel a lot and i was in uh xinjiang and i was in the desert driving through the desert on a bus for mm. four hours that was just one direction my gosh and um yeah <laughs> there was just solar and wind everywhere it was just a constant like reminder yeah. that China is taking this extremely seriously. And what's interesting is it's very difficult to transport electricity across long distances. So most of the electricity being mm. generated there is for Western China. There's an enormous yeah. amount of renewable energy in Inner Mongolia, in Shandong, and mm. actually kind of everywhere spread out through all of China. So what's really important here is, you know, China can cl get clean really fast because it's scalability and it's mo affordable and there are no tariffs because if Chinese companies are producing uh, solar and Chinese provinces are installing that solar, it's just going to be really fast here. Yeah. The concern, I think, for a lot of people, you know, looking at the world, because this is a global problem, even if one country fixes itself, it's not going to fix everything everywhere, is that there are a lot of regions of the world that are economically on their way up. And that means mm. they need electrification. And that means potential use of coal and potential use of natural gas and potential use of oil, which could add fossil fuel emissions to an already challenging problem. And mm. the solution is now China is helping these nations develop their uh, energy capacity. So electrification coming from China as part of the Belt and Road Initiative is a massive way that countries around the world are adding electrification and adding renewable energy. Now, there was a huge forum here in Beijing, the Belt and Road mm. uh, Forum, about a month and a half ago. And it was huge. And it was a, a lot of huge dignitaries from around the world showing the 152 member strong Belt and Road Initiative and its logistics uh, planning, yeah. its energy planning. And there was a lot of hoopla, and there still is from media pundits around the world, <laughs> including those in China, and I have to fault them a little bit, that, oh, the Belt and Road is finally going to be oriented towards green technology. Mm. 
I have, I literally sit for an hour every day and half of the last two years and do research on the Belt and Road, individual projects around the world and read about them. And I have to tell you, China was already doing that. So maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, there were a lot of, there were some coal or like oil uh, refinery processing facilities and energy facilities, but increasingly more and more up leading up and especially from 2018, 2019 and forward almost all of those projects are green. They are hydropower Mm. dams. They are solar farms. They are wind farms. And, you know, maybe there was a kind of like an agreement that moving forward, it's going to almost exclusively be renewable and green technology. But China was already on that bend. So it's not like suddenly China was like, "Uh uh-oh, oil's bad. We'll stop using that. China was already moving towards green technology before the Belt and Road Forum of 2023. So this isn't something new for a Chinese uh, construction companies and financiers. This is just something where they're reaffirming what they're already kind of doing. And if you look at countries like Ghana or Nigeria Mm. uh, or Kenya, there are already massive hydropower facilities there producing, you know, uh, hundreds of megawatts of green and renewable energy that has been developed by Chinese firms. Gajoba and uh, other companies have huge footprints there. One of the things that the Belt and Road Initiative is trying to do is create a little bit of economic independence for these countries. Allow these countries the ability to keep their wealth within their borders and develop themselves. So China is developing strategic projects in the Belt and Road Initiative among its member countries so that those countries aren't reliant on outside partnerships, but they can partner for mutual benefit. So one of the Mm. thinking, one of the, the sets of thinking behind the Belt and Road Initiative way before the 2023 forum is that if we build renewable energy in a developing country, guess what? They don't have to import oil. They don't have to import natural gas. They don't need to import Mm. coal, which gives them more autonomy. That nation can then use the money that they would have spent on importing all of these things for development. And so that's, uh, you know, if you build a hydropower dam and you maintain it every 20 or 50 years, it could potentially be there for centuries providing Absolutely. energy from just water. It's so, yeah. you know, it's, it's impressive. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting to to think about because I was uh, reading on, uh, funny that you mentioned Saudi Arabia, I was reading on Saudi Arabia's plan. Uh, Saudi Arabia also has a, a 2030 vision where they want to have, I think, 4%, I could be wrong on the numbers, but a 4% of their GDP coming from something else, coming from culture and mm. tourism. And they're trying to move away from being dependent on, you know, coal and all of these uh, fossil oil, all of these traditional energy sources that Saudi Arabia and some other Middle Eastern countries are kind of known for, for people that didn't know that part of the world too well. You mentioned their names, they think about fossil fuel. Um, and they're trying to move away from that. And that with China being the leading for one of the leading forces in clean energy, there's just going to be a lot of opportunities for collaboration with these countries as well. Well, absolutely. I think you bring up an interesting point. The economic viability of switching to renewable energy is going to be uneven for some countries. For example, Saudi Arabia is a major exporter of crude oil. And so they're concerned Mm. probably that all these other nations around the world will not need as much oil. But I don't think that is a major concern because let's say you're talking about, um, I'm not not into the military, but military uh, vessels like aircraft carriers, battleships from countries all over the world, they're not just going to suddenly be running on solar panels. So uh, Mm. those will probably, a lot of those non-nuclear vehicles, vessels, seagoing vessels will continue to need oil for the foreseeable future because you can't just replace that entire fleet or mothball it overnight. Rebuilding a Navy, you know, those orders are placed sometimes a decade before the ships come online. So uh, Saudi Arabia is not going to be immediately impacted by a reduction in the use of oil. And even as of course. we're built mm. adding new energy sources to the world that are renewable and green, say you're in a country that does not have a lot of wealth, uh, you, you do have some oil burning facilities that make energy for your local population. You're not going to just mothball mm. that, close it and say, well, you know, we're just going to put a solar farm here instead. You're going to be adding electrification for the next five to 10 years. And it's going to be a while before you decommission that facility. 
So oil uh, sales for those countries will still be ongoing for the foreseeable future. But what we need to do primarily and first is all new forms of electrification that are coming online globally need to be uh, these green technologies that do not add fossil fuel emissions to the environment. Mm. I just want to say something. I'm online a lot. What is it? I'm I'm in all these arguments with a lot of people who know what they're talking about (laughs) and a lot of people who don't. And one of the things that people who don't really understand this topic well like to say online, and it, it just like, I don't usually respond to this because it's kind of silly, but they say CO2 is a natural gas that trees consume. So it's don't worry about it. Okay. And so um, <laughs> I think maybe they, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Trees consume uh, carbon. Yeah. You got that. The problem is the proportion, <laughs> sir or yeah. madam. It's the amount mm. of it. It's it's not in the right range of how much there should be. Yeah. So I was, uh, yeah. I was expecting. Something smarter. Well, I mean, I get those too. I get very intelligent discussions with people who have other perspectives, but sometimes you get these uh, people who don't really know what they're talking about. (laughs) Who I don't know. They may have watched one Discovery show like in 1992 and be confused. I don't know. Uh, But yeah, yeah, we do need to reduce. Number number doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter in this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I I have another article, and you know what's one of the things that emits carbon is cars, Mm. conventional motor engines. Absolutely. So. This is from the BBC. November 9th, 2023, Kate Morgan. Three big reasons Americans haven't rapidly adopted EVs, electronic vehicles that, you know. So why doesn't mm. everyone have a Tesla is essentially the name of the article. So um, yeah, that's it, it, probably a better title. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. So we just had Gavin Newsom, governor of California, over here in China. And one of the things that came up is that and that he's learning from China is that before China consumers, Chinese consumers bought EVs at the scale which they have, which is more than half of all the EV sales in the world. China had charging stations everywhere, which made it easy. Mm. You're you're a consumer. I want to buy a car. I can't charge it, so I'm not buying one, right? But now in China, you can. So Gavin Newsom is now trying to roll out charging stations across California. So one of the concerns a lot of Americans have had is where am I going to charge this vehicle? And in the article, it says charging is a challenge. So if the United States Mm. is serious about reducing its fossil fuel emissions per capita, one of the things it can do is go invest in charging stations everywhere. You know, if you're in Colorado and you're on like, I don't know, any highway, there should be a place to go every 50 miles or something where you can stop your car and charge before you move on. If 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 the United States rolls out this infrastructure, then people will buy EVs. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I haven't been back to the States for a long time. Last time I was there was 2018 and EV wasn't really a big thing yet. I think Tesla was just making a lot of noise back then, but not that many people were driving it. Um, So I don't know the situation there now, but in China, at least in in these big cities where uh, there are always really, really high population density, uh, meaning there's a high car density, basically in every big mall's parking lot underground, there will be uh, really like a big number of charging uh, spots for cars to just get charged while you're taking a stroll in the mall. I don't know what it is like in the States right now, if malls mm-hmm. are equipped with that or places that people frequent are equipped with something like that. But that could be a major reason why you don't want to, especially for, you know, uh, cities like Los Angeles or cities in Texas where things are pretty spread out. If they're not very readily available at places where you're going to spend time, then you really do have to think about whether you should buy an EV. And in that way, I do understand why people are not jumping to change to to electric vehicles. So infrastructure is kind of a a big key here for other, probably not just America, for other markets to adopt EV as well. Well, you mentioned a really good point. If you're a business owner in in, in a small town in um, the United States and you're listening to this, think about this. You own a shop somewhere, a grocery store, whatever. You manage a shop, a grocery store somewhere. You have a parking Mm. lot. 
you want more businesses, you want more consumers to come to your business, to your grocery store, to your supermarket, to your strip mall, rather than the one, you know, down the road a mile, right? Well, if you mm. install charging stations where you can charge people to come in when they when they come in to park in your parking lot, guess what? <laughs> more people are going to come to your parking lot rather than your competitors. And then you can put, you know, you can put some of these uh, cute little products aside while they're waiting for their cars to charge. They can buy something. Exactly. I mean, I don't drive, uh, as as we all know, but I think the cars charge really fast nowadays. Like it's when it first became a thing. I remember hearing my friends talk about it back in 2015 or maybe even earlier. They were talking about like having their cars charged all night or something. Now it's like an hour and a half or two hour and a half kind of thing. I'm not sure, but it's, it's well, they pretty, got it up to where it's like 20, 30 is. minutes now. That's insane. That's insane. Mean, even, if, even if, say, you own a grocery store or whatever, and I'm, you're, I'm trying to convince you, you could, people are going to come in for snacks, right? They've got to charge their car. They exactly. got, they got 20, 30 That's minutes. That's like a coffee. Yeah, they're coming yeah. in. They're, they're shopping. Maybe they buy more than they need. Hey, profitability all around. Another issue with EVs adoption, the lack of adoption by Americans of EVs, is it says the affordability issue. And I didn't really think this was an mm. issue because here in China, EVs are actually more affordable in some cases than motor vehicles. I think yeah. I think the United States, one of the problems the U.S. has is tariffs. The United States motor industry doesn't want U.S. citizens to be able to afford uh, foreign print manufactured EVs. And so they put up yeah. tariffs on Chinese EVs and EVs from Europe and stuff. And so Americans- Which is a huge shame. Right. Americans are forced, if they want one, like to buy one. One from the United States, which and they're really, really expensive there. But if they, if the United mm. States was able to lower tariffs, you would have a lot more options that are very affordable. Exactly. We've we've talked about this as well. How many brands? Like just off the top of my head, I'm not someone who closely follows EV news, but just off the top of my head, there is Xpeng, there's Neo, there's uh, uh, there's BYD, who's who's Tesla's biggest rival right now in the whole mm. world. Yeah. There are all kinds of other Chinese EV. And all they have, they have sedans, they have SUVs, they have like sports cars in EV and they have sports SUVs. Today I was, I was in a cab going to my class, uh, my dance class, and we got like, vi not violently, but we got very aggressively taken over by this other car. And I looked over, it was a BYD SUV. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> as an SUV and an EV, you should drive carefully. <laughs> Don't be so rude. But yeah, they're function wise, their function and aesthetics wise. These EVs are all amazing choices, but just it's a shame that they're not all available in uh, the U.S. market yet. Mm. Well, you know, I was listening to another podcast, the Joe Rogan podcast, and he was interviewing mm. Elon Musk, and they were talking about how much they both love their Tesla. Obviously, Elon Musk loves his Tesla, but of Joe, Joe Rogan was saying the same thing, that it's his, his favorite car to drive around. Apparently, he, he has like a huge car collection, but driving his yeah. Tesla is his favorite car. So, you know, if, if that's all you can really get in the United States is a few different brands, Tesla is certainly a pretty vehicle, and a lot of people like them so i used to think i used to think teslas are really really beautiful when they first came out but i don't know if it's if people are not buying the the prettier the prettier makes of the car or what i've been feeling like recently when i see a tesla i was like the car seems a little just just seems a little chunky oh maybe i don't know i changed like i <laughs> oh yeah you changed your, your mind oh I, I was i thought you were yeah. gonna say something else on top of that all right well <laughs> So this, these are some of the solutions. And you and I also have talked about another one of the solutions, and that is mm. uh, clothing. So, you know, oh, yeah. it's apparently 10% yeah, yeah, yeah. of all fossil fuel emissions come from our attire. So, you know, the fashion industry is adding a lot of fossil fuel emissions because your T-shirt's not just made of cotton or whatever. It's made of fossil fuel emissions in the factory to process all of whatever it's made out of, which is yeah. a variety of different things, including cotton. Uh, so, you know, we need to re be reusing our clothes and not expending our wardrobes and things like that. So there's yeah. so much to do. I have been, I've been trying to do better in that front as well. We're talking about the world. So, you know, Europe seems to be doing a reasonably good job. They have some degree of wealth to, of installing all of mm. this stuff. My concern is this. There are nations around the world who can't really afford 
to import and set up all of this stuff. I'm hoping that the United States can help China in terms of finance too. We have the IMF, we have the World Bank, we have AIIB, we have uh, Chinese development finance from the Import-Export Bank of China. We have all of these institutions around the world, but some of those institutions are charging too much interest for loans to to help countries develop. So you have like the Club of Rome and the Paris Club and all of these other groups that also Mm -hmm. offer loans, but they offer loans at like 7% interest, 8% interest, 6% interest, 6.25. This is way too much interest. So if you're a developing nation, you can't really afford that. And I think it's a little exploitative. So one of the things I hope that the leaders at uh, of this kind of movement and at the COP28 forum can discuss is the United States and maybe, you know, China, maybe uh, other countries that have some wealth like G7 members, France, uh, Germany, uh, England, Japan, etc., that maybe they could help finance energy for developing nations at, you know, 0% or 1%, 2% interest. Mm. A lot of the Belt and Road Initiative energy investments I have looked at are at concessional rates. Concessional typically means, you know, 1% or 2% uh, interest rates on those loans, which means they get paid back, but they get paid back in such a way that it isn't a financial blow to that economy. And if, we're, you know, yeah. I understand that nations or banks, they want to make money, but we should, we also want to survive. <laughs> and like, we're all on this earth together. You know, we haven't yeah, got- this is what, yeah, yeah. yeah, this is what people say. This is a, like investment for the future or on the future. If you want to make money, short term, then you're kind of taking away from a collective future that we can all have. And I know it sounds like you're, it sounds really grand and people might say, well, I'm an organization I need to survive. But again, this climate change is one of the things that we really are sharing together as a community globally. So it's not just one organization, not just one country. So think about the future that you want and think about that interest rate and see if you can maybe lowered it a little bit for other countries to also be in on this cause. I think that is a huge deal because a lot of nations who want to develop electrification, they want to they want to add in generating capacity in whatever form it is, solar or, or anything. They they look at the cost mm-hmm. of the loans that they're being offered. And if it's not ideal, then they may just not develop, which is bad, you know. Because yeah. if you look at an impoverished community without electricity, Electricity. It's so unproductive for them. So if they have food, it's going to yeah. go bad within days, right? They don't have yeah. refrigeration. So they need electrification. This is going to raise so many people out of poverty. So if you're at an underdeveloped yeah. nation where you have villages and townships that don't have electricity and you want to install uh, energy, but the only loan you can get is 6%, you may not do that. And that leaves people in poverty. So, I mean, I know that the topic is let's prevent there being fossil fuels, but I think we also need to look at we need to provide global electrification for all people. And if we can, let's do that using solar farms, wind farms, offshore wind, and all of these kinds of technologies, which will not add difficulty to the environment. Another thing about adding electricity to an impoverished community beyond the fact of refrigeration is Mm. industrialization. A country can not enter into an industrial phase, have a factory if they can't have, if they don't have electricity. So a way Mm. to raise more people out of poverty is to add electricity. If we just develop solar across huge swaths of the earth that currently don't have electrification, we will add, you know, global uh, GDP growth to to everywhere. And and the amount of productivity will skyrocket. And we can do so without adding, um, you know, fossil fuels simultaneously. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world Mm. where, you know, we don't have to worry about the environmental impact of industrialization and we could decrease poverty at the same time, that's what we would get if we could lower the interest rates for loans for renewable and green energy. And I think that is something that I haven't read any articles on. I haven't read any articles by serious uh, media pundits that talk about the interest rates um, for green and renewable energy for undeveloped places. And I think that this is something that I hope is being discussed at COP28. 
Yeah, and I think this is actually a really, really good, uh, it's not a topic, but I think it's almost like a discipline and needs to be discussed and studied and a little bit of unpopular opinion here. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. You know how most of the times, most of the times when we read anything related to climate change or renewable energy, um, it's either, you know, very, very financial, financially related or industry related. Um, and if it's not just data and statistics for people to make their investment decisions um, or project decisions, it's for it's from a lot of advocates. And I think it's important to advocate for climate change, of course. Um, but a lot of the advocates are doing things that, quote unquote, raise awareness from people. But we've been discussing for the past 10 minutes, a lot of the probably a huge chunk of the world population are not really in the place of just standing up and say, you know what, I'm going to take part of my life away from its normal routine. I'm going to dedicate that to dealing with climate change. A lot of people don't really have the luxury to do it. Mm-hmm. And if you read articles in, in Chinese and English or whatever, you will see that the biggest changes, we want people to have individual awareness about the environment, of course, but also the biggest changes, the most rapid changes that we can have are mostly coming from bigger institutes, bigger organizations, bigger entities of, of things. Think about all of these giant office buildings in these metropolitan cities. Mm-hmm. When they make a small change, they in what they do, they bring really big impacts. Then everybody's saying, uh, I'm going to ask all of these people to stop using plastic straws. What you can do is as a corporate, you replace the plastic straws and make them the paper straws, you know, just as one of a not so adequate um, example. So I, I don't want people to just focus solely on saying, oh, we need to change it. Like do what Jason did. And if you have ways, if you have, if you haven't thought about, you know, uh, making some impact in how organizations make their decisions, that's probably what you need to do more than, I'm sorry, (laughs) going to like ruin an ancient art piece, you know, and say, we want to raise awareness. I'm not saying that that the paintings, right. Yeah, I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I think it is important <laughs> to do it. But also, how much real impact do things do that do that kind of like, you know, advocacy really, really bring to this whole cause? And infrastructure, that's what we're talking about, really is the key to a lot of regions and areas that don't have such luxury to even have a giant museum in the first place. And if countries like China and the United States can work together and, and, and Germany, you know, all of these bigger uh, uh, economies and uh, countries with a lot with, ha- you know, high level industrialization work together to help other nations, um, whether it's technology or actual, uh, you know, apparatus to set up their uh, carbon neutralization uh, facility, then I'm pretty sure that we can see changes in the near future. And that I think that is also a route to go. Not saying that we don't need to raise awareness. I'm really treading on really thin ice right now. I love uh, art. And when I see people defacing uh, great pieces of art, it frustrates me. And it doesn't make me think about climate change. (laughs) If you're ever in those conversations online when someone someone shows a video of those defacings, no one starts talking about environmentalism. Everyone starts talking about either the value of art or what's wrong with the youth. And so it doesn't yeah. it doesn't raise awareness in the way that they think it does. It just makes I'm people so talk about something because else. I'm like, what's the like, this doesn't make me this doesn't make me realize how bad the climate change how bad climate change could be for humanity. It's like this makes me think what's going on with humanity. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think there you know raising awareness is a critical and important thing to do. I don't think that is an effect. Sure. I don't think that is an effective tactic for doing so. I think maybe showing people the effects of uh, climate change, uh, you know, you show a village that is, you know, people are walking up to their knees in water and like they are displaced and they're going to be thousands of people that have to move their entire, you know, ancestral homes to somewhere else because the ocean is swallowing their village. That's a reality that people will take home. And if you show them that picture, they will be talking about the effects of climate change. They will not be talking about, you know, 
know, is tomato sauce going to get through the plastic that protects the painting? <laughs> or what's wrong with the youth? Yeah, today? you know what's a yeah, you know what's a more useful uh tactic? I don't know if you watched that video, but I've never been I, I had this whole plastic discussion with a lot of people when I was a lot younger and when I was really angry when I was trying to do things. And I was like, oh, we need to do better as human beings. But then my friend learned my friend was a my mentor. Um he's a huge like you, he's a huge data person. And he just kind of casually laid all of those numbers on me and said, if one giant organization decides to do something different, it's going to beat the whole world so-called uh, individual awareness trying to do something together. And so that's when I was like, you know what? Okay, fine. But also I was angry about it. I was willing to talk about it because I saw that one video of the person pulling the plastic straw out of the nose of this really yeah, cute little right. turtle. Yes. I was like, see, show me that. Because there are a lot of things that climate change can do to humanity that we don't really realize as just, you know, ordinary people mm-hmm. who are not really, you know, reading up on climate change every day. For example, some certain like really cute animal could just, they could just die completely, could just mm-hmm. go mm-hmm. extinct yeah. uh, with climate change. Show me that cute animal. <laughs> I'll be like, you know what? I want to keep that little cute thing alive. <laughs> Tell me what to do, or at least I'll pay more attention to it. It. That, I, that, I think that's probably that's going to just make it a little easier on people to get on to sign on for the for dealing with climate change as individuals. Oh, yeah. You're listening to the bridge. The one thing you know. It's really frustrating for me as an American because I see the priorities that we spend money on and I feel like those are not the things that I would prioritize. And I I understand that we need a very good national defense, but a a, a trillion dollars a year on our military feels disproportionate. And I wish we could spend some of that money on other things. But, you know, given the the Mm. debt problems the U.S. is having, it's challenging. I was talking to Jeffrey Sachs last year, and one of the things that he said Mm. is that he he has a six-step plan. He's part of the United Nations um, Creative Development Solutions Network. That's literally the name of their organization. And there's six steps to raising all people out of poverty. He wasn't just talking about uh, Mm. green energy. But one of those is electrification. You know, in order that one of the first steps to getting people out of poverty is electrification. So the others have to do with education and 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 so forth. But the first step is electrification. We need people need access to electricity to be brought into modern lifestyles. And one thing that he said was mm. we should be spending globally a trillion dollars a year helping raise the global south, but the underdeveloped world out of poverty. So a trillion mm. dollars a year. Now I, we are not spending that, but that is roughly, and he pointed this out because I, I gasped and he, he pointed yeah. out the fact that it's only 1% of global GDP. And by now, you know, this already been a year. It's probably mm. less than that now. So we're talking about slightly less than 1% of glo- global GDP. If all of the developed nations could get together and provide that for the global South, we could raise yeah. all people out of poverty in a few years. All people everywhere. Now, maybe that is very ambitious and maybe a lot of people – I mean, it's unrealistic. But if we just spent half a trillion a year, we could probably provide electrification for all people everywhere in the world and it could be green and renewable within a few years. We could actually solve many of humankind's problems if we could create the financial mechanisms that worked together and low interest rates to actually end, you know, basically basic forms of poverty and and yeah. global warming almost immediately. The reason it's taking so long and potentially we won't meet our target of 1.5 degrees Celsius is because of greed and misappropriation of wealth. Now, I have to say for one that China is definitely doing its part. Anyone who is well read about the Belt and Road knows that China is developing nations all over the world. In addition to the rubric of providing low interest concessional loans for green energy projects, mm. China it did a Hundred and ninety-nine projects. I think it was twenty twenty-one and twenty twenty-two. Those are projects where China wow. provided loans 
to develop these technologies. But I also read about Chinese development aid. And so China actually also builds, in some cases, at a smaller level, free solar uh, farms for countries around the world. I'll give you one example I was researching yesterday. In Nepal, and this happened in 2017, 2018, I think. In Nepal, China uh, provided the funds to end the technological capability to provide electrification for the uh, entire government compound, which is 23 buildings in Kathmandu. So China came in Mm. and built built a one megawatt solar farm to provide electrification for all of the government buildings in Kathmandu, 23 buildings, uh, Mm. including the Department of the Treasury and so forth. So uh, in some places around the world, and this happens more often than people think, China just shows up and says, we're going to build you, you know, a solar farm. We're going to build you a wind farm and and we're going to build you, you know, a small scale hydropower dam. And it does so free as part of aid. And there's some various organizations in China that are doing this. It's not just one. One of them is the CIA. IDCA, which goes around the world helping with farming technology, helping farmers learn how to agronomists go out, doctors go out, uh, there's supplies for emergency aid, but it's actually also happening at a local level. Like uh I can't remember yeah. the exact project, but it was in Indonesia, Shanghai. The local municipal government went into Indonesia and built a school for them for free one time. So it's not just mm. energy, but it's other projects too. China does aid projects and their aid is different than a lot of aid that comes from the United States. The United States often does food aid. So here's here's a whole bunch of rice to help feed, you know, a million people for the next month. Yeah. China shows up and they teach people how to farm. And then there's not a need to have food aid because they teach them how to be more independent. So it's like teach a man to yeah. fish versus give a man a fish, right? Give a man a fish is yeah. more like America aid style. Here's a fish. And China's like, okay, this yeah. is how you go fishing, right? And so a lot of the projects, they're educationally related. They're hospitals that are being built for free. But there's also green energy technology that China is building for a lot of countries in a lot of cases for free around the world. And it's a lot more than people might expect. So if the United States and Europe could take helping the underdeveloped world as seriously as China, honestly, we would be meeting a lot of those targets that Jeff was talking about. Yeah. And internally, you know, we've been talking about what China has been doing externally, collaborating or facilitating or assisting other countries to to deal with climate change. Um, Internally, there's a lot of, I've seen a lot of uh, summits, conferences, or even competitions for these big corporates to develop their management systems, utilizing any sort of available tech. And especially with AI nowadays, a lot of companies, a lot of big corporates, enterprises are trying to readjust their whole infrastructure system um, to utilize the power of AI and then develop this whole green energy you know, power system, because all of these companies use a lot of power with all the big office buildings that they occupy Mm -hmm. in these cities. So there's there's been so many initiatives to encourage corporates to be part of this as well. And that's how the whole green tech could go further. It's not just a government idea. It's not just waiting on the tech to come forward. A lot of the participants are taking their own initiatives to be uh, part of the goals as well for carbon neutrality. So you ha- you kind of have this internal drive to help you be more uh, ready and more equipped to do things to face bigger challenges in the future. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I have a Reuters article here, and this is quoting an, another organization. Mm. Uh, probably could just read it off of their website, but I went with the article I found first. Wood McKenzie, which is kind of a think tank on green energy, uh, it just mentions mm. that China will dominate the solar supply chain for years. And I think this shouldn't be surprising given that China has developed solar at such scale. And this is really the secret yep. of China's success in this, is that it's just such a large country with such a large population with so much need for development. And China invested very heavily in developing itself and development projects from 2008 forward. So uh, there's China is really critical, a critical piece of the puzzle globally. So when we're looking at nations Mm. around the world and how to develop them. 
my concern is well, another concern that I have, I guess I've already mentioned a couple of them. <laughs> One of my big concerns is <laughs> protectionism, trade protectionism. So the United States or European yeah. countries, sometimes they're like, oh, we don't, you know, European leaders are looking around. Oh, we want to make our own EVs. We don't want to import Chinese EVs, but Europeans love Chinese EVs and they're buying them up as fast as they can <laughs> because they're scared that, you know, the European Union is going to put tariffs on Chinese EVs before they yeah. can get a good deal. And that's not good for the environment. Trade protection mm. is not good for the environment. Sure, you want your German company yeah. to be the one selling the EVs. I get that. That makes a lot of sense. But we are in a critical period for humanity. And yeah, maybe yeah. we should just be buying them at the b best price point to reduce the amount of fossil fuel emissions as fast as we can, Germany. Sorry, but you yeah. know, <laughs> work on a different industry that you can be competitive in. China has kind of already cornered yeah. the market here. And you know, if we can use China's yeah. the the fact that China's already produced this technology at scale for us, then that might just save us from extinction. You know, that's kind of a big deal to me. Not being extinct as a species. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and listen to the market. You know, listen to the market players as well. It's not that Chinese companies are trying to go overseas and just take over your market share and and just bring the money back to China alone. There are a lot of joint ventures and a lot of collaborations between, you know, on company levels from Chinese EV brands with other, um, you know, either uh, a battery makers or, or car makers overseas. They're, they've been working together so that they could share yeah. their tech, they could share their brand, they could share the good things from each side mm -hmm. and combine it together um, to use locally. So it's not just, it's not about, you know, a very kind of standalone expanding uh, uh, agenda scheme from these Chinese car makers. And the, the, these players are already trying to work together because it is kind of the future. So maybe go with that flow and see how you can provide better regulation and, and market supervision to make sure that no one is uh, playing foul, but really encourage this kind of uh, cooperation between these countries. And it's all going to be part of the big goal to adapt to climate change so that we can survive, you know? Mm. Last thought for me is that, you know, I'm really thrilled that Wang Yi went to Washington, D.C., that Gavin Newsom came to China, that Yellen came to China, that Blinken came to China, that uh, yeah. she went to San Francisco and met with Biden, and that things seem to be yeah. going better than usual. You know, this is not the Absolutely. same period a year ago where everyone was talking past each other. It looks like we're actually talking with each other. And so I hope that, you know, back in Nixon's time, what was it? Ping pong diplomacy. Maybe we can have green energy now, diplomacy. Yeah, they call it panda conversation. <laughs> but, you know, pandas are, pandas are important. And then just very quickly, now that you mentioned that, and um, I think in the after the, the Xi Biden meeting in San Francisco, the president of China has said that we welcome and we they're going to create these opportunities for young Americans to come and see what China is about. And then I hope there is going to be more conversations between the young people from uh, both countries. It's going to really, they're going to generate better ideas for our future and from the two big players in the world. Well, I think that's a very positive note to end the show. If you guys want to be part of this conversation, please email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. And if we like your comments, we will read your comment on the air. Thank you so much for your time, listener. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. Thank you, Jason. And thank you, everyone.